2014, an American pastor named Kevin DeYoung, he published a book entitled The Hole in Our Holiness. It's all about the relationship between the gospel message of the gift of free salvation and the corresponding call for Christians to live lives marked by holiness. But as DeYoung notes in his opening chapter, for many Americans today, there seems to be a gap between these two things, between the good news of God's free grace to us on the one hand, and what the 18th century Anglican priest, William Law, what he once referred to as the, the serious call to a devout and holy life on the other. In the past, Christians saw these two things as inextricably intertwined, but now there seems to be a gap, a hole, DeYoung says, that divides them. The hole in our holiness is that we don't really care much about it. Passionate exhortation to pursue gospel-driven holiness is barely heard in most of our churches. It's not that we don't talk about sin or encourage decent behavior. Many sermons are basically self-help seminars on becoming a better you. But that's just a sort of bland moralism, DeYoung says. And that's not the same thing as taking seriously one of the great purposes of our redemption, which is holiness. Later in the book, DeYoung offers some of his own observations about why he thinks many Christians today are unenthusiastic about holy living. For some people, the language of holiness, it, it conjures up a list of taboo behaviors that you're supposed to avoid. Drinking, gambling, watching R-rated movies, that sort of thing. And a lot of Christians think that obsessing over those sorts of things is just very trivial. Or maybe even worse, that it comes across as a kind of prudish and self-righteous snobbery. As soon as you share your concern about swearing or about avoiding certain movies or modesty or sexual purity or self-control or just plain godliness, people look at you like you have a moralistic dab of cream cheese on your face from the 1950s. Believers get nervous that their friends will call them legalistic, prudish, narrow-minded, old-fashioned, holier-than-thou, or worst of all, a fundamentalist. DeYoung suggests several other reasons as well. For instance, sometimes we don't emphasize holiness simply because it seems, well, to be a little uncool, or because talking about godliness and ungodliness comes across as judgmental, or because it just sounds, honestly, it just sounds hard, and we're just too lazy. Not all reasons have bad intent. Sometimes we don't want to talk about holiness too much because we think that to do so is to neglect grace, as if telling Christians that they ought to avoid sin and pursue holy living, that that will inevitably result in people forgetting that their salvation is a gift and not an achievement. But the general thanksgiving says otherwise. The general thanksgiving assumes that we will indeed strive for holiness, not out of some misguided moralism, but in thanksgiving for the undeserved grace we have received. It's precisely because we are aware of God's mercies, precisely because we know that we are the recipients of, of manifold and unearned gifts, 
That's why we seek to show forth God's praise. By what? How does the prayer put it? By walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. While we Christians don't always talk a lot about the importance of holiness, that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about it. To the contrary, the Bible talks about it a great deal. In fact, you could say that this is actually the entire purpose, the very goal of the gift of redemption we have received. God's purpose in redeeming us is to make us holy. As J.I. Packer once put it, holiness is the goal of our redemption. As Christ died in order that we may be justified, so we are justified in order that we may be sanctified and made holy. You could see this in the story of the Exodus. God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt and then brings them miraculously through the Red Sea and across the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And then he tells them, then he tells them his purpose in doing so, his reason for liberating them. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Later in the book of Leviticus, as Moses is in the middle of giving the people God's instructions on how they are to worship and how they are to conduct their lives, God once again reiterates their, their calling to be a holy people this time framing it as an imperative for them to follow. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God gave gifts to the people of Israel. He gave them the gift of redemption. He gave them the gift of freedom. He gave them the gift of, of being his chosen people. But these gifts had a purpose. They weren't given so that the Israelites could just go and do whatever they wanted. They were given precisely so that Israel could be God's holy nation, a people who walked in holiness and righteousness all their days. And the same is true of the gift of redemption that God has given to all Christians. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Did you catch that? The reason that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, has given us every spiritual gift, the reason that he has enriched our lives with so many graces, is so that we would be a holy and blameless people. To quote Paul once again, this, this time from his first letter to the Thessalonians, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Or, to quote from a different apostle, this time from the apostle Peter, who says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You might remember that I quoted that same verse from Peter two lessons ago. And on that occasion, I, I pointed out how Peter was using the words that God spoke to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, and, and he was applying it to the church. At that time, when I quoted that verse, I was pointing out 
how God's purpose in redeeming a people is so that they might show forth his praise. And now what I'd like us to notice is how closely this call to show forth God's praise is connected to the call to holiness. God gives the gift of redemption for a purpose. He does it to create a people who will show forth his praise. And how? How do they do that? By being a holy nation. By being holy as he is holy. By walking in holiness and righteousness all their days. My point is that we're wrong when we think that talking about the need for holiness is somehow diminishing the centrality of grace. In fact, when we neglect holiness, then we actually do damage to the grace of God because we undermine its very purpose. When we don't take seriously the call to be a holy people, we aren't honoring the gifts of God. We're actually rejecting them. So holiness is important, and the call to holy living is something no Christian can neglect. But what is holiness? And how, in our zeal for walking in holiness and righteousness, how do we avoid becoming self-righteous prudes? I like the definition that the 19th century Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle gives. Ryle thought a lot about holiness. He taught about it regularly, and he actually wrote a book about what the Bible has to say on the topic. And here's how he defines it. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. He who most entirely agrees with God, he is the most holy man. In practice, according to Ryle, that means avoiding and shunning sin and adopting the kind of attitudes and behavior that, that Paul talks about is the fruit of the Spirit, peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, etc., as well as paying close attention to the commandments of God in Scripture and seeking to obey those in your daily life. But the primary reason that I like Ryle's definition isn't because of all the righteous behaviors that he goes on to describe or his emphasis on shunning sin, both of which are certainly important, but because he describes holiness as being like God, being of one mind with God, thinking and acting like God. And when the Bible talks about holiness, that's exactly what it has in mind. Holiness is first and foremost an attribute of God. When the prophet Isaiah is given a vision of the heavenly throne room of God, what he witnesses are angelic beings surrounding the throne and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Similarly, the apostle John also receives a vision of the throne of God. This comes in the book of Revelation. And like Isaiah, he hears something coming from around the throne. And this time, it's a, it's a song that's being sung by all the saints who have died and now reside with God in glory. And they're all singing together, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? 
for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. You alone are holy, they sing, for your righteous acts have been revealed. If you want to understand what holiness is, you have to start there with the fact that holiness is first and foremost an attribute of God. So to be holy is to be like God. Further, righteousness is revealed in the acts of God. So to be righteous, to walk in righteousness, is to act as God acts. And once you understand that, then it becomes clear that holiness isn't about being a prude or just avoiding certain taboo behaviors or acting as if your moral standards make you better than other people. Holiness isn't about any of that at all. On the contrary, holiness is about being like God. And what is God like? Well, as we discussed in this study way back in session two, God is first and foremost a giver. God's eternal life is a life of generosity and love, a life of delighting to give and taking delight in what is given. God is the one who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the one who is love. So to be holy is to love as God loves. What's more, God is the one who, who demonstrates righteousness in all his actions, actions that include welcoming strangers, defending the defenseless, giving aid and comfort to those in need, and, and showing incredible patience and mercy to those who don't deserve it. Centuries ago, way back in the 4th century, a certain bishop and theologian named Gregory of Nyssa, he said that the goal of the Christian life is to imitate the divine nature, to become like God as far as we possibly can. But what does that entail? Well, for Gregory, that meant following after the pattern of God as it is revealed in Jesus Christ. To be like God is to show mercy as God is merciful. To be like God is to bring peace and healing to those whose souls and bodies are in pain. To be like God is to set aside your own priorities for the sake of another. When we meditate on the nature of God as it is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, what we see above all, Gregory said, is that God is love. So, if we wish to become like God, that is the pattern that we must imitate. In the year 368, there was a terrible famine that struck the region of Turkey in which Gregory lived. And in the wake of that famine, thousands upon thousands suffered from hunger, disease, and deprivation. Gregory's older brother, Basil, who was also a bishop, responded to that crisis by by founding and constructing what is now often recognized as the world's first hospital, called the Basileid. And that hospital provided free lodging and food for, for poor and weary travelers, and free medical care for those who were sick. And Gregory helped Basil. Specifically, he did it by preaching a series of sermons to inspire some of the wealthy Christians in the community 
to contribute the funds needed to take care of those in need. And you know what he said to them? You know what he said to motivate those wealthy Christians to act? He reminded them that they have a call on their life, a call to walk in holiness and righteousness, a call to be like God. And since God is generous and loving, since God is the giver of all good things, that means that Christians have an obligation to go and do likewise. Be holy as I am holy. That was Gregory's message. But for him, that didn't mean avoid certain taboo behaviors, and it certainly didn't mean acting like some kind of self-righteous, holier-than-thou prude. For Gregory, it meant thinking as God thinks and acting as God acts by showing hospitality to strangers, by showing mercy to the undeserving, by giving good and generous gifts, and by loving as we are loved. We are the recipients of numerous and manifold gifts, of many good things that we neither earned nor deserved. You and I have been shown kindness, and in response, we give thanks and show forth our praise to the giver by giving up ourselves to service and walking in holiness and righteousness all our days. I pray that this will be true first in my own life, that I won't forget God's gifts, that I'll be aware of his kindness, that I'll give thanks not only with my lips, but in my life. And I pray that this will be true for you as well. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we give you humble thanks.